I love talking on the show about mental health, about healing, about trauma, about healing trauma, and there has been a lot going on. So who do I want to talk to? The fantastic Dr. Mark Goulston. Dr. Mark Goulston is a Marshall Goldsmith 100 Coaches member and coaches entrepreneurs, CEOs, chairs, and managing directors become the best version of themselves. He is also an international keynote speaker helping audiences do the same. Originally a UCLA professor of psychiatry for over 25 years and a former FBI and police hostage negotiation trainer, Dr. Mark Goldston's expertise has been forged and proven in the crucible of real-life high-stakes situations. He is the author or co-author of nine books with his book, Just Listen, being translated into 28 languages and becoming the top book on listening in the world. He is a host of the highly rated podcast, My Wake Up Call, and the co-host of Out of Our Minds and In Your Space on Twitter Spaces, which is a mashup for creatives and thinkers. Dr. Goulston, so excited to have you back. Well, it's been too long. It's been too long. We've probably been traumatized and getting back from it, or we're still stuck in it like the rest of the world. I think so. You know, I've seen people, some of my friends and family, they're, they're much more reactive. Their stress level, it's like they're exploding when you're like, wait, what? What's happening? And I think it's just all so much. And it's just, you know, it's going to be two years very soon, which is mind blowing. I feel like I don't even, I don't even remember like pre COVID days. It just feels like, Oh wait, we used to just live our lives. Wait, what? (laughs) How's it been for you and the people that you see in your life, Dr. Golston? I think we see the same people. (laughs) (laughs) What are some of the ways that people can heal rather than just cope? Well, one of the things that we, uh, uh, that's in the book that people have found fascinating because they check the boxes and they say, oh my God, that's me, is we, we, we have a, 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 an emotional trauma algorithm. So I want you to imagine you're a healthcare worker and it's the midst of the pandemic and you work in the emergency room. And, you know, on a bad weekend, you know, maybe a couple people die, a few people on, uh, in the ICU, but in the peak of the pandemic, uh, there were 10 people dying in a weekend. You were all, plus you, you're sweating inside all of that uh, uh, protective gear. Oh, God, uh, yeah. They can't see their family. Some of them, uh, you couldn't get to them in time to do the FaceTime. Goodbye, I love you. You leave the hospital and there are trucks uh, because the morgue ran out of space. You go back home and you don't know how you'll make it through it. So here are the steps. So I want you to imagine that's the mindset. And by the way, this is a similar mindset to veterans. Other people have been deeply traumatized. So the, so, uh, the difference between stress and trauma is that you can still hold on to your goals during stress and uh, focus. But once you're traumatized, uh, it's it's very difficult to hold on to your goals and your focus becomes, how do I get through this? And so a, tr- so a trauma is something that is way beyond what you're used to experience. And, and, what, and then something happens that we call the horror, terror, fragile trifecta. So you're horrified by it. Uh, you, when you have a moment to think and you go back to your apartment or your house, 
you're terrified by what you saw. You, you don't have the you don't have the time to do it while you're on the job, and you feel fragile. And then what happens is you feel like you're going to panic. So horror, terror, fragile, uh, feel like you're going to panic. But what happens is you're very duty bound. You're duty bound. You're committed to your peers. You won't let each other down. And so what happens is adrenaline kicks in because adrenaline is, uh, uh, goes up with both excitement and danger. And and adrenaline insulates us from pain, psychological and physical. An NBA player can play on a fractured leg because the adrenaline insulates them from the pain. So there you are while you're running on adrenaline because of the danger. What it does is you push down your, push away the thoughts and you push down the feelings because otherwise you'll be overwhelmed. And so, and then you, and then you show up, you're in the middle of a shift and you say, I don't know, I'm going to make it through the next, uh, three hours and voila, you've made it through 24 hours straight. And, and you feel this, this veneer of I'm kind of superhuman, but down deep, I'm falling apart. I don't know how I'm doing this. So what happens is you go through it. The, the constant adrenaline is stressing out your system you're running on high cortisol. The adrenaline also makes you focus. Adrenaline's like Adderall. So you're getting through it, but it just doesn't go away. And then what happens is when the danger goes away, like with veterans, when they come back, they're not in a war zone. Why are they killing themselves? Because when the adrenaline insulation goes away, all the thoughts and feelings you pushed down and away to survive come back. As uh, one of our uh, people we interviewed said, imagine this, when you're going through the horror, terror, fragile trifecta, it's like hearing a feral alley cat screaming and you lock it in the cellar to function. And then you lock another one. And then you lock 10 more. Then you lock 100 more. And what keeps the cellar door closed and focused is that adrenaline. But the adrenaline goes away and the cellar door looks like it's going to open and it feels like all that stuff that you pushed down and pushed away to survive is going to come up and eviscerate you. You know, I wrote PTSD for dummies and for years I've been trying to change the diagnosis and I gave up because it's too uphill. But the real diagnosis, I believe, that people live is re-traumatization avoidance. If you think about it, uh, because when I've spoken to people who've been deeply traumatized, uh, and I was actually telling them about the book, oh, we're writing a book, Why Cope When You Can Heal. And especially when I spoke to women who are more in touch with their feelings, a number of the women would look at me and their eyes would water. And I say, what's the matter? And they say, if only. If only what? If only I could heal. And I'll say, what do you mean? They say, I cope, but I'm not the same as I once was. What do you mean? I'm tentative. I don't step into life with two feet. I'm always checking. I'm always checking for danger. And coping's better than not coping, 
but I am exhausted. And, and when you say to them, uh, do you think you could go through it again? Many of them say, I don't know how I got through it the first time. I don't know how it didn't take me down. No, there's no way I could get through it again. Now, uh, not to, to reassure your listeners, we do get through it again. Just because you think you can't get through something doesn't mean you can't. But, you, but, but can you follow that? So that algorithm, it, trauma, horror, terror, fragile, uh, overriding panic, uh, push away thoughts, push down feelings with adrenaline, danger passes, it feels like they're going to come up. And then you do whatever you can to stay away from them. You overeat, you overdrink, uh, you stay away from people. Uh, you know, and what happens is when you're in a setting in which you feel you can lower your guard, picture a veteran uh, feeling uncomfortable in every setting except his pickup truck, and he lowers his guard and he hears a car backfire, wham, he goes through the roof. So, so that, that's what you live. And the way to go through it uh, and we're developing pilot programs is is to take people through all the steps and then sharing the story collectively because when people share the story collectively uh, they there is they there is a surge of oxytocin and what a lot of people don't know is that high cortisol is associated with high stress and it's good to meditate, and it's good to uh, use yoga, but they're solitary. What really counteracts high cortisol and high stress is oxytocin. I I'll share something because I I'm hoping to do more of these programs. This was actually before, uh, before the pandemic. Uh, I was part of a panel at Hollywood High School in Hollywood, California. It's a, you know, it's a largely African American high school. And it was an after school program, how to deal with stress. And there were four panelists. I was the fourth. And whenever I'm on a panel, I always say, let me go last. And there were two life coaches and a therapist. And they did a great job explaining about stress and anxiety. Uh, and it was after school in the cafeteria. It was about two in the afternoon, and I started smelling pizza. So I thought I'd better do something special because I'm going to be dead. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's no way to compete. <laughs> you know, they're already getting they're already getting restless with these other three people. So I here's something I did, which uh, I'm now doing with organizations and schools, and would welcome to hear from people who are interested. So picture this: there's 40 high school students in the cafeteria in Hollywood High School. And my other panelists have just shared great information, but they're getting a little bit restless because I think they came there basically to, you know, spend time after school and get the pizza. So I tried something different. So they're all looking at me, these students, and I say, uh, I'd like you to think of the worst moment you had in the last week and raise your hand when you're there. So they look at me like you're looking at me like deers in the headlights. And I said, no, really. Then one by one, they raised their hands. And, and you could just feel things shifting in the room. And then I said, I'd like you to attach one of the following words to how you felt. And the words are, 
anxious, depressed, frustrated, angry, alone, lonely, uh, overwhelmed, numb, ashamed, uh, uh, angry. I think I said that. And so one by one, each of the students said their word. And then we finished. And I said, how did that feel? And they said, that felt wonderful. I said, why? Why? I mean, those are negative words. Why? They said, I didn't feel alone. Mm-hmm. I, I, I connected with everyone. And then I said, did you think less of anyone when they said the word? No, no, not at all. Uh, then I said, do you feel like you're in a room of special people? They all raised their hand. I said, you're no more special than you were an hour ago. What happened is you shared a special moment of shared vulnerability. And it was vulnerability you got past because we framed it that way, you know, uh, you know, in the past week. And, and here's the deal. Uh, when you have a friend who you're worried about, tell them that this crazy shrink came to the high school and, 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 and ask your friend when you're feeling at your worst, which of these words is connected to it and then keep them talking. What was interesting is people from the high school afterwards were behind them. And after we did the program, one of them came up to me and they said, it was fascinating what happened. He said, when you did that exercise, he said, I just saw their backs. They stiffened up when they were on the spot. But then when they said the word, they relaxed their shoulders. And it was like, and he said, it was like watching dominoes. I mean, one by one, they just... They said the word, relaxed their shoulders, and they leaned in towards you in the panel. That's what because they shared oxytocin. Do you like to go last because you know that? And I'm not saying this like like you should be bragging, but you you have such a way of working with people. I I don't mind going first, but if I'm in a panel, uh, I do have some. Uh, I'm I, I have developed some ability to tune in to where people are at. And so, and, and I pick up when people are not, are, are disconnected. So, uh, so I, I, I knew that what would happen is they'd get good information and, and they would nod from the neck up, but you, you'd be pushing their attention span after about 40 minutes. And that what they really needed was someone to bring it together. And so I, I seem to have some skill in tuning into where people come from. And, and basically, I think you've shared, I've shared my story in a prior podcast about my work in suicide prevention. So for me, surgical empathy is going into the dark night of the soul where suicidal people are stuck. And what a lot of people don't know, but they'll agree with as soon as I say what I'm about to say. Um, when you're feeling hopeless, and worthless, and it just won't go away, death is compassionate to that kind of pain. Death basically says, I'll take it away. It's like the sirens calling out to the sailors. Come on, you know, sail on to the rocks. Uh, and, and, and something else, and this is what worries families, and understandably is, Anyone who's been suicidal as a way to take the pain away, many of them will get past it, 
but they don't entirely get over it. They stick it in their back pocket, always thinking if worse comes to worse, you know, I can, I can end it all. And so what surgical empathy is, is when they can feel felt by you uh, in their pain and you're not throwing treatments at them, you're not judging them, and you're not rushing them, they may let go of death as healing the pain and grab on to feeling felt. Yeah, that's huge. And there's a, there's a there's a there's a push I'm going to make, and, uh, and maybe you'll have me on in oh, a few sure. months. But um, uh, I, in part of my work in this area, uh, I'm pushing people to not hurry empathy. There was an old Supreme song: "You, you can't hurry love." You know, it's a, it's a game of give and take. Uh, because because when you empathize with someone, and basically they feel you get where they're coming from, and you say. Uh, I'll bet that must feel scary to be that depressed all the time. You know, a lot of times you're you're checking the box that you were empathic, but what I am pushing people to do is once they're there attaching to you and they agree, yeah, it's scary, you want to spend some time there so they can attach to you and let go of attaching to the counterproductive, destructive behavior. So other questions might be, how often do you feel that way? And when it gets bad, how bad does it get? And when it gets real bad, how alone do you feel? And you're feeling alone that way and you don't think there's any way out? What, what does it make you want to do? Then why, why don't you do that? But do you follow what I'm saying? That's much deeper so uh, I'm uh, I'm on a bit of a mission uh, be, because I seem people seem to associate me with this empathy stuff, but when you empathize with someone, you don't want to do a bait and switch. You don't want to say, "Well, I checked the box. Oh, well, that must be really scary for you." Uh, now let's see what we uh, now let here are the treatment options. Uh, okay. Do you follow me? You don't want to tease them with yeah, the connection, right. and 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 they've been connecting deeply to their uh, coping mechanism. Can can I share an anecdote that will? Uh, of course. Uh, I don't think you've heard this one. If you have, well, it's been a while. But I remembered, uh, 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 and there's an article on it called. Uh, I think surgical empathy, eating disorders, enter individuation anxiety. Terrible, terrible title. Eating disorders, enter individuation anxiety. So many years ago when I was training as a, a psychiatrist at UCLA, UCLA had one of the top eating disorders programs. Oh. And uh, and it, it was brutal because – you know, the patients would come in, they were near death, so if they weren't going to eat, you tube fed them. I mean, it, it sounds savage, but that's better than death. And I remember, on, I remember on a Saturday night, this skeletal young woman came in, and it was clear that she, I needed to admit her up to the inpatient unit. And there was no one waiting behind her, so normally I would have had the nurses take care, and I would have gone back to my room to, you know, grab a nap, but I know something about her said something to me. So, so picture the skeletal, probably 20-something young woman. 
And, and we were taught a lot of other modalities back then. So it was, uh, we were taught medication, but we're also taught something called guided imagery, hypnosis, visualization, uh, meditation, all kinds of things. And we were encouraged as long as we didn't uh, trigger people to use them. So picture this, she's there, she's skeletal. I said, can I try something that might help? And, you know, if it feels uncomfortable, you can just say, can we stop? She said, sure. And I guess I had established a rapport with her. And I said, put your feet up on the chair, close your eyes. And I want you to, I said, are you right-handed or left-handed? She said, right-handed. I said, good. Put your left hand on your stomach and just breathe slowly. And the left hand is the mommy you always wanted. And we're not here to bash your mother. And they're going to find out all about your family history upstairs. But, but the left hand is the mommy you always wanted. And I want you to breathe in slowly and feel the warmth of that left hand saying, I'm here and I'm not going anywhere. And just breathe it in. I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. And then I want you to take your right hand, put it on top of your left hand. And that's the hand of the dad you always wanted. And the dad is saying to the mom you always wanted, I'm here, I'm not going anywhere, and we're going to get through this. And then, we, and then back and forth, I just said, just, just breathe in, feel the left hand, the warmth of the left hand, saying, I'm here, I'm not going anywhere. Then feel the warmth of your right hand on top of your mommy's left hand, saying, I'm here, I'm not going anywhere, we're going to get through this. And just keep breathing that in. And her eyes started to tear. You could see tears coming down the sides of her eyes. Then I get a signal that the bed's ready. So uh, they're going to come down and get her. And so uh, I had to bring her out of this. I said, you know, this, I don't know. If, I said, look, this is, the, I don't know if this is a visualization or hypnosis or what it is, but I'm going to count to 10. And when I get to eight, you're going to start flickering your eyes open. And then at 10, you're going to open your eyes and you're going to either remember everything we talked about or nothing. You can't fail. There's no way you can fail. But what you will remember is this feeling, the feeling of your left hand being that patient mommy saying, I'm here, I'm not going anywhere. And the right hand being that strong, patient dad reassuring your mom and you. And so we count slowly back, and when we get to eight, she, her eyes start flicking open. And then we get to ten, and she's looking around. And about that time, the people from upstairs come to the room and say, you know, the bed's ready. And, and she just looked at me, because she was about to leave the room, and I said, you're going to get better. You don't have to believe it, but you're going to get better. And she looked at me and smiled, and her eyes were a little uh, bloodshot from crying. And as she's leaving, she looks at me. She said, can I stop at the cafeteria? I'm starved. God. Wow. But you can see how, can you see how it fits together? Yes. But how did you know how to do that? Did someone teach you that or did that just come to you? Well, there were three, there were three, uh, three things that taught me about listening into people's minds, into their eyes, and into their souls. So let me just go through those quickly because I, I you know, I don't want to take too I'm much sure. of your time. Sure, it's incredible. So listening into people's minds. So something I shared on a previous podcast is 
And one of the reasons I could relate to people is I dropped out of medical school twice for untreated depression. So I knew what it felt like to be depressed. And, uh, and, uh, and my mind was just not able to hold on to information. I could understand things, but I couldn't hold on to it. And I remember I was on rounds at, uh, in, at the, uh, VA hospital outside of Cleveland Circle in Massachusetts. You, you know the area. Uh, and it's right up the street from it, I believe. And we were doing rounds uh, on a medical ward. And I was overwhelmed with all the details. There, were, I'm a medical I was a medical student. And there's interns and there's residents and there's, you know, attending doctors. And they're all competing with each other. Mr. Jones needs more tests. Mr. Jones needs surgery. Uh, Mr. Jones needs this. And, and, and I, my mind wasn't doing all that well. And then a nurse came over and said, we're outside the room. And she said, didn't you hear Mr. Jones jump from the roof last night? He's in the morgue. And then I heard as clear as day, a voice or a thought that said, Mr. Jones needed something else. So that was hearing into people's minds. I don't know where that came from. Uh, and then the second time that I tuned in, this is listening into people's eyes. I was called up to the, uh, uh, I think I may have graduated uh, my psychiatry training, but I, I was called up to the oncology floor, and there was a fellow called Mr. Smith. And Mr. Smith had AIDS, but it hadn't yet been given a name. So this is 1980-ish or so. And, uh, uh, and I was called up by the oncologist saying, we need you to okay uh, an order for restraints on his arms and legs and for uh, a tranquilizer because he's pulling at his IVs, he's pulling at the respirator, he's kicking, he's, he's trying to get off the bed, and we just need you to come up and okay that. So I go up there and there's Mr. Smith and his eyes are as wide as saucers. And he can't talk because he has a respirator, you know, in, in his throat. And he's going, ah, ah, ah. I said, what? And he just goes, eh, eh, eh. I said, what is it? And he's screaming at me with his eyes. That's, this is listening to his eyes. I give him a pencil to write something down, but his hands are tied down. And he just scratches something. I couldn't read it. And so I thought, well, they're right. You know, he's psychotic. You know? And I said, we had to put your arms and legs down because you're pulling at the IVs and you're kicking and you're pulling at the respirator. And, and I'm giving you a medication to calm you down. And when, when you calm down, we'll take everything off. And he, he, and he kept staring at me with these eyes. So a day goes by. I get Paige and they say, Mr. Smith is off the uh, respirator. He's seated in his bed and he told us to page you. So I go into his room. And he grabs onto my eyes with his eyes, like I'm looking into your eyes, and he says, pull up a chair. And he seats me in a chair with his eyes. And then he holds onto my eyes, and he says, what I was trying to tell you is a piece of the respirator tubing had broken off and was stuck in my throat. <gasps> oh and my you God. do know that I will kill myself before I go through that again. Do you understand me? And I said, I'm sorry. 
Yes. So that was listening into people's eyes. And then something else, which I'm sure I shared on a prior show, but I'll share again. So I became a suicide specialist. One of my early mentors was a fellow named Dr. Ed Schneidman, and he is one of the top five pioneers in the study of suicide and suicide prevention. And he used to refer me all these suicidal patients that many times that residents didn't want to see once they were discharged. And there was one that he referred to me that I'll call Nancy. And she had made three attempts before I'd seen her over the years. She'd been in the hospital three or four times for up to six weeks. Way back then, you could go in for a lot of weeks. And, uh, yeah. and I'm with her, and I didn't think I'm helping her. And I've been seeing her for about six months, and she never made eye contact. And once a month, I would moonlight at a, uh, a state psychiatric hospital, uh, Metropolitan State Hospital in Norwalk, California, where I'd cover for the other psychiatrists during the weekend. And sometimes you don't sleep for 24 hours. And, you know, when you're sleep deprived, your mind gets a little bit uh, wiggy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so there on a Monday, uh, I'm there with Nancy, and she never made eye contact with me in the time I was seeing her. But that was as long as she'd gone without a hospitalization or suicide attempt. And as I'm with her, like I'm with you, uh, she's not looking at me. She's like this. And as I'm looking at her, all the color in the room turned to black and white. So I'm looking at the room, and it's black and white. It's not color. And I'm getting cold. And I thought I was having a stroke or a seizure. So I'm a medical doctor, so I did a neurolog neurologic exam on myself. I'm tapping my elbows. I'm looking at my fingers for double vision, you know, and everything's there. And I thought to myself, I'm not having a stroke or seizure. And then I had this crazy idea. I think I'm looking out of the world feeling what she feels like. That the world is like black and white and cold. So because I was sleep deprived, I blurted something out that normally I wouldn't. And I said, Nancy, I didn't know it was so bad. And I can't help you kill yourself. But if you do, I will understand and, and still think well of you. I'll miss you. And maybe I'll get why you needed to do it to get out of the pain. And I thought, did I just give her permission to kill herself? I thought, I am screwed. <laughs> and, and then she looked at me for the first time. And she grabbed onto my eyes, and I thought she was going to say, thank you, thank you for understanding, I'm overdue. I said, well, what's going on, Nancy? And she looked at me, and she said, if you can really understand why I might have to kill myself to get out of the pain, maybe I won't need to. Oh my God, you've got me all kinds of tearing up over here. And then I grabbed her by the eyes, because this is the first time we made eye contact. I grabbed her by the eyes. And I said, uh, I'll tell you what we're going to do. I'm not going to give you any treatment unless you ask me for it. Because, you know, you've been going through this for four years or so. Uh, if you ask me, you know, we'll try something. Um, would that be okay? And I'm holding on to her eyes, and she looks at me like, keep talking. She said, yeah. 
And then Lisa, I leaned into her eyes like I'm leaning into yours, and I grabbed hold of them. And I said, what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to find you wherever you are. And I'm going to keep you company there as long as it takes. Because I just don't want you to be alone there anymore. Would that be okay? And then her eyes teared up and she smiled and she turned a corner. And the, and the thing is, we can all do this. So my goal is to teach as many people as possible. Um, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll leave you and your listeners with something that I've been teaching the world if I can. So I have a book called Just Listen. Just Listen's in 28, so 28 languages. It became a topic on listening in the world. Uh, I've spoken uh, twice in Moscow. And the last time I spoke, I headlined with a Nobel Prize winner named Daniel Kahneman. He wrote Thinking Fast and Slow. He has another new book out that's great called Noise. And, and, and I headlined with him because five of my books are bestsellers in Russia. But the last time I spoke, and I'll send you a link to the video clip, what I've been trying to teach the world, and it's going on right now between you and me, is that when you're in a conversation with anyone, or you're making a presentation, or you're on a podcast, underneath people listening to you, people are listening for something. And if you know that they're always listening for something, Nancy was listening for hope. And if she didn't have to feel alone, you know, maybe maybe she could be hopeful about the future. Um, Mr. Smith was listening for someone who understood that he's not a suicidal person, but he was not going to go through hell again and be re-traumatized so that he could let go of how angry he was at the system and all the other doctors. And I was too late with Mr. Jones because he was in the morgue. But if you can realize that whoever you're with, they're always listening for something. If you're in a conversation and you get a feeling that, you know, it just seems to not be going anywhere, you can pause, look into their eyes and say, let me ask you something. I, I have a sense that you were listening for something and you didn't hear it. What were you listening for? Huh. And why were you listening for that? Oh. Huh. Have you been listening and looking for that for some time? And so part of why you're tearing up, and I'm hoping that this is of some value to your listeners, is my guess is that you have felt alone in trauma, that you have coped more than you've healed sometimes. So because you haven't healed, and, and your listeners are listening for, is there a way to heal from trauma? Is, is there a way to feel joy instead of just occasional fun? Is there a way to feel peace instead of just exhausted? Yes, there is a way. Can we clone like a million of you? Because people need help. 
you just know how to get in there and it's beautiful. You always move me deeply. And I'm wondering if you've ever thought about writing a book of these stories because they're so incredibly moving and relatable and hopeful. And I feel like right now we need hope. Yeah, there's a there's a number of books that uh, I'm I'm thinking of writing. Yeah, but 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 we'll revisit this. So read the book, and we'll uh, uh, and you'll have me back on if uh, you want a part two. Yes, you could come on once a month. Do you work one on one with people? I know you work with CEOs and and you work with companies, I believe. But do you like do counseling with people one on one, like regular, like someone like me, for yeah, example? Yeah. Well, something that's happened since I was last on, I've uh, I've I've joined something called the Marshall Goldsmiths uh, Hundred Coaches. So Marshall Goldsmith is possibly the top executive coach in the world. And it's an oh, wow. invitation-only organization. So it's up to about 300 coaches, and we meet every uh, Monday at 7 a.m. Pacific time. And these are the best coaches in the world. I'm not sure why they let me in, but they uh, – uh, <laughs> Stop. <laughs> and, and, and so they – and here's an interesting thing. I'll just share this with you. It's sort of an aside, and I'm happy to oh, introduce sure. people to the resource I'm about to mention. One of the coaches – uh, name is Aisha Berseld. Uh, don't ask me to spell it, but she has this incredible program, and maybe we'll have her on your show called "Design the Life You Love." And uh, for members of this organization, she did the program for free about six weeks ago, and it was fascinating because uh, it's a tool, uh, an you know artificial intelligence tool. The cornerstone of it, right in the middle of it, and you can be thinking about this, and, and who knows, we could go on this tangent and you and people will feel better just from the episode. But the cornerstone of it is think of three heroes from your life and think of qualities that you most admire about them. So what was interesting is Marshall Goldsmith is one of the funniest most charismatic, uh, comfortable in his own skin, expletives, uh, just flow, and he gets away with it. <laughs> but what happened to him is he took this, uh, he went through this program, this process, and the three people he admired most, he, now he's a philosophical Buddhist, doesn't mean he's religious, mm -hmm. but he just follows that kind of, you know, what is, is, what isn't, isn't. So his three heroes were Buddha, a woman named Frances Hesselbein, who's over 100, still going strong. She ran the Girl Scouts, but she's one of the best leaders ever. And Peter Drucker. Oh, wow. Peter Drucker was a big management guy, and and uh, Marshall was uh, a co-author in an early book, and that catapulted Marshall's career. And what he discovered, he admired most about the three of them, is that they were selfless and generous, which he realized he wasn't. So he formed the 100 coaches. Uh, it's invitation only. And there's no money to join. There's no expectations, no guilt trips. And he basically said, look, in the time I have left, uh, I just want to help as many people who can change the world, change it. And I'm reaching out to you coaches to do the same. And the only thing you owe me is to pay it forward. So I found that fascinating. And when I went through it myself, I came up with three things that I'm focused on. 
And these are my three main focuses. One is on mental health, especially suicide prevention. And so I'm partnering with a fellow named Jason Reed, whose 14-year-old son died by suicide. And we've been doing presentations to YPO, Global, and EO. He has a documentary called Tell My Story, which was one of his son's suicide notes. The second, uh, it's the three-leg priority besides my family. The second one is racial justice and racial equity. And I've introduced this this African-American, unbelievable man named Andre Norman, And I've introduced him to the Fortune 500, and he's going to be speaking to the top 200-plus CEOs of the top 200 uh, companies in May about how they have to do do a better job dealing with the black community because the black community just doesn't trust them, will never trust them. But that said, you can can still uh, do right by them. And the third thing that I'm focusing on, uh, it's a little bit grandiose, uh, but why not be grandiose at my age? What the heck? Uh, it's, what I'm, it, it's what I'm calling the Future Project. And I'm partnering with a fellow who was the founder and CEO of something called Singularity University. What, we're do- what we believe is that 99% of the world wants the same things. They want health. They want safety. They want food. They want a future for their kids. And so... Rob Nail, the uh, former CEO of Singularity University, uh, the vision we have is 30 years into the future, most young adults will be grandparents. And I'm a granddad to three young children. I see them every day. They're three and under. And I'll tell you, I I love my children. I adore my grandchildren. And and so in my (laughs) mind... uh, I'm thinking that when they get to be teenagers, they're going to look at me and say, Grandpa, could you have done anything to make the world a little less lousy? So, so, I, so it's my vision. And so we have a young writer who's like an Anthony Bourdain going out around the world, interviewing the 99%, hearing their stories of what they've overcome but then getting a shared dream for the future 30 years from now, which will give us a hopeful present. And so we're hoping it'll be a book, a podcast, a, uh, a documentary, a global live events, and a social media platform. So, and, and I'm connected in all those different areas, so I'm connecting all the dots I, I'm in this world to support other people. Tell us all the places we can find you and all of your incredible books and your talks and all that good stuff. Okay, so I have a podcast called My Wake Up Call, and we're rounding 300 and some episodes. I post three a week. I have 10 weeks of inventory. I get 15 requests oh a week God, to be awesome. on. I've had people from Larry King to Norman Lear to Jordan Peterson to Esther Wojcicki to uh, Ken Blanchard to... Uh, uh, wow. And I, I can't keep up with it. And I'm posting three a week. So that's my wake up call, which I hope people will check out. Um, uh, there's one, uh, there's one episode that I'm reminded of Colonel Chris Kalenda, K O L E N D A. He, uh, he went to West Point and, and we did a visualization with him because I asked him what's most important to him in life. He said, authenticity. And I said, 
So tell us your origin story and wake-up calls that led you to your purpose. So the whole podcast is, what's your purpose? What were the origin story and wake-up calls? And without missing a beat, he said, I was 15 and I was sexually molested by a Catholic priest. So right in that episode, he's a tough guy from West Point. We just did a visualization of his going back to his 15-year-old self right after he was molested. Oh, my gosh. And so, of course, we're friends now and all that. So my wake-up call, uh, it's available where you get your podcast, markgoulston.com. LinkedIn, I have a pretty good profile there. And uh, I actually have an audio course called Defeating defeating Self-Defeat at Himalaya.com, Himalaya.com forward slash defeat. And you can listen to it for free if you get the, you know, free subscription for two weeks and then cancel. But if you, uh, if you weren't put to sleep, uh, if you found what, and that's, and that's all stories. It's 13 chapters. They're all stories from my past. So I hope people check that out. And, uh, well, we did an interview on it. So people go back and go to where you listen to Talk Healthy Today and just scroll down until you find it, Defeating Self-Defeat. That was amazing. You're always incredible. Yeah. So we will So we will visit this again. Yes. Well, that's it for our show today. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you. And we would appreciate it if you could please rate and review and leave a comment because the more you engage with our podcast, the more you will find it and help other people find it wherever they listen to their podcast. So be sure to follow us. I'm at Andrea Donsky and at Naturally Savvy and Lisa at Lisa Davis MPH. Thank you so much. And please share this episode because the more you share shows you care. We'll see you next time.